morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 20. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, just raise your hand, and Richard will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Just raise you up there. Just a couple of hands, Richard. We have plenty. Right behind you, Richard. Anybody else need a Bible? He'll get, he'll get one to you. Stephen? Stephen can get his own Bible. Get up. No. <laughs> I'm teasing Stephen. I love, love Stephen. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Revelation chapter 20 this morning. The title of my message is How to Enjoy Eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, and to know, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us, to instruct us in all things, Lord, that pertain to life and to godliness. Lord, your word gives us a future. Your word gives us a hope. Lord, as we sang this morning, we long for the day that we could be with you, Lord. We know that you're coming quickly, and Lord, we want to be ready for that. So, Lord, as we look to your word this morning, Lord, it's going to excite us, Lord, and it's going to prepare us just for that. We pray, Lord, that as it goes forth, that it will accomplish what it's set out to do, Lord. It would change us. It would conform us more into the likeness and image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again today. Lord, if they were to die, they don't know for sure that they would go into heaven for all eternity. Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you and to surrender their heart and life to you this morning. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Story about a newly ordained pastor First days of his calling, he was uh, attempting to console a widow of an eccentric man who had just died. And he's standing there before this open casket, nervous as a young pastor would be, and he says, uh, I realize this must be very hard for you, Miss, Mrs. Fenson. J- just try to remember what we see before you today is only the husk. It's only the, the shell of your dear husband. The nut has gone to heaven. Oops. <laughs> with that said, death is something that, that we are uncomfortable with. In fact, we have developed words so we don't have to say the D word. We say, well, they cashed in their chips, or they kicked the bucket, or they reached room temperature. I, I don't know. Or... <laughs> Funeral directors, they like to say, well, uh, the, the passing away of the, the dearly departed. No, the person died, okay? That, that's just the way it is. It's something that we need to come to grips with because the fact of the matter is, if the Lord should tarry, we're all going to die. You've heard me say this many times before, that the odds have not changed. One out of every one person dies. And it's true that we all die. But the real issue is, what happens after we die? Well, according, according to God's Word, there's only two options. Either you will hear, come, you blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Matthew twenty five thirty four, or you will hear, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew twenty five forty one. 
Well, Revelation chapter 20 gives us some insight into both options and how we can make sure that we will be enjoying eternity and not suffering for eternity. In fact, chapter 20 of Revelation has its own outline built in for us. Four points if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to see before the millennium. Number two, we're going to see during the millennium. Number three, we're going to see the end of the millennium. And number four, we're going to see after the millennium. Number one, point number one, before the millennium. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we saw really last week we had a study uh, entitled, It's Time to Catch Up. And after Easter, we caught up where we left off in Revelation. We looked at the events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation period. We looked at the, the, the Battle of Armageddon, where at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, according to Zechariah 14, 4, Jesus in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, it says there, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. So Jesus is going to return. The mountain's going to split. And then from that point on, and we looked at this about four weeks ago, we did a study called uh, It's Time to Clean Up. And we looked at the gigantic cleanup operation that's going to take place at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, starting in chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, where the angel says to the birds of the air, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free slave, both small and great. In other words, birds, get ready. You're going to have a feast you're never going to forget. I mean, talk about roadkill. Horrible time, but it's going to be the Lord saying, I don't want this place a mess. I'm going to set up my millennial kingdom. I mean, at that point, you know, it's all done. And all that remains is the aftermath of it and of God's judgment. It's time to clean up. Then we looked at, I think it was been four weeks ago, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 20. And we looked at how Satan wants to keep you from heaven and God wants to keep you from hell. How Satan wants to destroy you and how God wants to restore you. Satan uh, will do whatever he can to attempt to bring destruction, especially in the life of a believer. And God will take out whatever Satan dishes to, uh, to us and use it for are good in the life of a believer. Now we know uh, when Christ returns, one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to throw the Antichrist, he's going to throw the false prophet into the lake of fire, but then actually he's going to deal with the devil himself, Satan himself. Look now at the first three verses of Revelation 20 as a way of reminder. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a while. Now, we kind of need to put our thinking caps on a little bit and do a little Bible college class this morning on the subject of this phrase, a thousand years. It occurs six times in this whole chapter, it's the word millennium that comes from the Latin milli and enum, which means a thousand years. This passage clearly teaches and distinctly teaches about a millennium of peace yet to come upon the earth. Outside of the six occurrences here in Revelation, the term a thousand years is only used twice. Psalm 90 verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch of the night. 
And Second Peter 3, 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In both those instances, they require a literal uh, use of the phrase thousand years. I bring this up because there are those who do not believe in the millennial reign of Christ, and they like to say that the thousand years is figurative. In spite of the different uses of the word, it can only have its true understanding in the context of what's being said. For example, if we take the word run, the word run, you can have a, a run in your nylons, you know, or, or uh, you can score the winning run, or you could, there's, a, there's a run of the, on the salmon or running, you know, or, or run for your life. There are many different possible meanings of the word run. We don't not have a hard time understanding how it's used when it's used in the specific context. Same is true in the Bible. The context is the deciding factor for determining how a word is used. And even though the word thousand by itself can be used figuratively, like in Psalm 50 verse 10 where it says, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills, we know it's figurative because Psalm 24 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Not just a thousand cattle. The whole world is his. But never in Scripture, when the year is used with the number, is its meaning not literal. So here, when God says a thousand years, he's being very specific. There is a beginning and there is an end. In verse 2, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And in verse 3, the thousand years are finished. A beginning and an end. In verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. A beginning and an end. Folks, context is king. In order to take a thousand uh, years figuratively, you have to take it out of context. And if you do that, then you can get the Bible to say whatever you want it to say if you take it out of context. Now, with that said, it's important to point out that this topic and this chapter is one of the great battlefields of Scripture. All sorts of opinions are out there, different views concerning this 1,000 years, this thing called the millennium. It's been battled over for years. There are three views in particular, if you're taking notes. Number one, there's the amillennialism. Number two, there's the postmillennialism. And number three, there's a premillennialism. First, the term amillennialism or amillennialist. They do not believe in a millennial reign of Christ. The word ah meaning no or none, you could call them non-millennialist. They believe that Christ is presently reigning through the church and that the thousand years is simply a metaphor, metaphorical reference to the present church age which will culminate in Christ's return. That the thousand years began when Jesus Christ died on the cross and that's where Satan was bound. And that view is really made popular through the Roman Catholic Church. Now for those that hold that view, and there are those who hold it so strong that they're willing to cause great division in churches over it, for those that hold that view, I'm sorry to say, but there are quite a few problems I find within this view. And this way of thinking. First and foremost, as I've shared this before, if Satan is bound, he's got way too long of a chain, in my opinion. <laughs> he's nipping at my feet, then. He's been nipping at my feet. See, if he's bound according to Scripture, then why does Peter in his letter write, Watch out for the enemy. He goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That doesn't sound like Satan is bound to me in Peter's day when Peter issued that warning. Secondly, when it comes to Satan being bound, verse 3 says that he is bound so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousands years were finished. How can anyone argue that the nations are not still being deceived today? Certainly they are. 
Look at all the different religions in the world today. Most of India is Hindu. Buddhism is prevalent in all of the Southeast Asia. Islam in Saudi Arabia. Baha'i originated in Iran. You have Confucianism draws on the folk religion of China. My point is that the nations are still being uh, deceived today as we speak, and they will continue to be deceived until Satan is bound. Thirdly, when it comes to amillennialism, amillennialists claim that God washed his hands of the Jewish people because of their unbelief, and therefore uh, he has no purpose left for them. Listen, that's a very destructive doctrine, and it's led to, uh, to much anti-Semitism. The fact of the matter is that the Jews are still God's chosen people and the Lord intends to fulfill every promise He's ever made to them as a nation. Book of Romans, Paul made that a very, very clear. He asked this rhetorical question in chapter 3. Has the unfaithfulness of the Jews nullified God's faithfulness to them? For almost 2,000 years, the church has said yes. But Paul says no. He says, may it never be. We know Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27 tells us this. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, to the Jews, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the non-Jews. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will return. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, the Jewish people have been set aside as a result of God's discipline. But He has not forgotten them. That's the reason why the Jews are being regathered from the four corners of the world right now. You know, it's really celebrating uh, Israel becoming a nation once again here in, in May. This is one of the greatest miracles of history. And see, the Lord intends to provoke them to repentance by bringing all the nations of the world against them. And we're actually seeing that right now as we speak in the Middle East. I'll save that for another study. <laughs> Finally, the fourth thing that comes when it comes to amillennialism is you have to throw out the rapture of the church. There's no rapture. Jesus comes back and that's it. See, my point is there's all kinds of problems that you face holding an amillennialist view because you're forced to spiritualize a whole lot of verses. I like J. Vernon McGee. I mean, he says it only the way he can say it. Uh, he's gone home to be with the Lord. But, but the way he says this, he says this, quote, To spiritualize this passage is to disembowel all scripture of vital meaning. He says the thrones are literal. The martyrs are literal. Jesus is literal. The word of God is literal. The beast is literal. The image is literal. The mark of the beast is literal. Their foreheads and their hands are literal. And the thousand years are literal. It's all literal. A thousand years means a thousand years. If God meant that it was eternal, I think he would have said so. If he meant that it was 500 years, he, he would have said so. Cannot God say what he means? Of course he can. And when he says a thousand years, he means a thousand years. <laughs> I like that. Next view that, that is out there is called the post-millennialist. And they should make a cereal out of this. Kellogg's post-millennialist. <laughs> make it to post-toasties. This view actually is, 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 is interesting because lately it's begun to, to take up some, some steam, especially in our political climate that we find ourselves in today and in churches today in America. We're now calling it dominionism, but its original form is post-millennialism, held that Christ would return to the earth after a millennium or a period of time, a great blessing in which the gospel triumphed and righteousness and peace characterized the whole world. Post-millennialists or, or, or dominionists hold that the view that the church will usher in the kingdom of God. 
that as we, the church, will take dominion of this earth, take dominion of the earthly institutions, take dominions of the government, put a Christian in the White House, Christian in the government, and the world will just get better and better and better until it's ready for the kingdom for Jesus to return. As if God needs our help. <laughs> now all you have to do is look around and see that, that things are not getting better and better. <laughs> if this is the case, we're really failing at our job. And, and there's many difficulties with this, this understanding of this as well. I, I mean, think about what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.13 and Matthew 24.12. But evil men and apostles will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to get worse and worse. Matthew twenty four twelve. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's what we're seeing today. That doesn't sound like things are getting better and better to me. And finally, like our millennialism, post-millennialism throws out the rapture of the church. And that's pretty discouraging to me as well. But this brings us to the third view. Premillennialist, and obviously this is the view that we hold at Calvary Chapel Springfield. And by the way, it was a very dominant view of the early church for the first three centuries. The premillennialist view says that when the tribulation is over, at the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus Christ is going to come right back before man has the opportunity to destroy himself completely off the face of the earth, and Jesus will set up his kingdom upon the earth. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will rule from the throne of David. And that prayer that we've been praying for some 2,000 plus years that the Lord taught us to pray will finally be answered when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will happen when Satan is bound for a 1,000 years. Now when that happens, other things uh, will take place as well. That The earth is going to be restored to the way it was before the fall of man. The animal kingdom is going to be like in the Garden of Eden before the fall upon the earth. Listen to Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my, ho- my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you were at the zoo, you know, you know before COVID, and, and you looked at these animals, and they look so cool, and you think, man, I would love to hop over that fence and play with an animal like that. I, I mean, I, I, everyone does. I mean, I stood in front of a lion's cage and thought, if the Lord is really with me, I could be a Daniel. Like, man, I mean, Daniel pulled it off, right? I mean... I'm sure he just didn't sit there and look at them. I bet he had to grab their manes and pet them and just, wrestle with them. It would be fun. Of course, I don't want to test the Lord either, you know. So, remember years ago when my son Matt was, I think it was six or seven, we went to Stratford Animal Park up there and, and uh, they had in the cage these two young uh, ligers, I guess they're called, the lion and the tiger mixed. And, but they were just cubs. And, and Matthew was running back and forth and these little cubs, they're running back and forth like, like, like just little puppies and wanted to play with them. I thought, how cool it would be to play with them. But I know if he got in there, they'd bite his head off. And so, you know, but here in the millennium, I mean, your three-year-old little boy is going to be playing with a grizzly bear. You're jumping on his back and playing with them. So, hey, your kid's playing with the grizzly bear. Yeah, I know. Isn't it cool? It's a millennium. Are your kids going to play with the snakes? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't care. Too much of a reputation. <laughs> Stay away from them. 
Or Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the deserts. I told my wife, she's a, a paraplegic, many of you know that, she, she'll leap like a deer. And I says, and it says, I'll be singing right next to her. The tongue of the dumb shall sing. And so here we go, right there. I just love, I don't know, when I read Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 35, I get excited. I can't wait. It excites me. These verses mean so much to me. It means my wife will walk again. Those that we've loved that have gotten to be with the Lord, they're going to have new bodies and perfect health. There will come a time, I believe, in a not too far future where God says, that's it. I'm done with the way this earth is now. It's time to redo things. And the only way I can see that happening is, is in a fulfillment of these scriptures uh, of Old and New Testament life that describes a premillennial reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. So the three views, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, I'm not sure about any of those views. So I'm calling myself a, a panmillennialist. Not sure how it's going to happen. I figure it's all going to pan out in the end. I mean, after all, does it really make a difference what you believe about the millennium? Absolutely, it does. It matters what you believe about the millennium. It matters what you believe about Bible prophecy in general. It matters what you believe about anything because your beliefs determine the way that you live. If you believe the Lord can come back at any moment in the rapture of the church here, that's going to determine the way that you live. You're going to say, Lord, I want to be prepared for this at a moment, at any time. If you think that, that the rapture is not going to happen and things are just going to get better and better until, you know, Jesus comes back, well, you know you have plenty of time because things are getting better and better. And if you think there's no rapture and things are just, Jesus is going to come back, then, then what difference does it make how you live? See, that's why it's so important that context is key, that we understand these things. Now, with that understanding, that brings us to our second point during the millennium. We talked a little bit about that, but, but what will be happening during the millennial reign of Christ? Look at verses, we're told in verses 4 through 6, but look at verses 4 and 5 first. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Many promises are given throughout scriptures about those who will reign with Christ during this 1,000 year period, the millennium. The disciples were promised thrones in Luke chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus said to them that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We as believers, we're promised some authority according to 1 Corinthians 6.2. It says there that, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Remember, Jesus also talked about meeting out rewards or giving out rewards. In Luke chapter 19, verse 17, in the parable that Jesus spoke, he said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little, so you'll be, have authorities over ten cities. So it'll appear that, that we'll be given different responsibilities during the millennial reign of Christ. Now you may be thinking, well, I don't really want to be ruling or judging. That doesn't sound like fun to me at all. But listen, this is a reward that Jesus is speaking of. A reward is something good. 
It's not like, thank you for finding my lost dog. Here's your reward. You get to clean up, clean up after him for the next thousand years. No, that's not the way it works. Jesus would not have taught us to be using our opportunities and time wisely here on earth if we thought we wouldn't like the reward that he's prepared for us. Paul wouldn't have told us to run the race so that we might win the prize if the prize wasn't something that we would want. See, the Bible speaks of two judgments. The great white throne judgment, which we'll read about in a moment, but there's the Bema seat, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat is described in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 through 15, this way, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, the beam is seat, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So you want to have these rewards for heaven. You don't want to smell like smoke when you get to heaven. You want to go, okay, Lord. So, how easy is it to be rewarded? Well, listen to Matthew ten forty two, And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of these of my followers, you'll surely be rewarded. So a cup of water to a child assures a reward. Now, don't run downstairs and give water to the kids. They're in Bible study right now, okay? But there's other ways to receive a reward. Matthew five eleven and 12, Jesus said, When people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So when people mock you, they persecute you, make fun of you, it assures you a reward. Of course, it should be because you're a follower of Jesus Christ and not just because you're being mocked because you're weird, Okay. Then, then another uh, verse, Jesus said in Luke 6.35, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. So it seems from Scripture, God has made it pretty clear how we can get uh, rewards when we get to the millennium and rule and reign with Christ. We can be prepared ahead of time with a great reward. So we'll be ruling, we'll be reigning with Christ. And then here in verse 4, we read of the tribulation saints that have been martyred, that have been beheaded uh, during the Great Tribulation because they refused to worship the beast or the Antichrist. They're going to also reign with Christ for a thousand years. Even though they were brutally beheaded for their loyalty to the Lord, a thousand years of reigning with Christ will more than compensate for their suffering and it will make the executioners extremely envious to say the least. Yeah, these, these martyrs will experience a moment of suffering for a millennium of glory. I think we need to keep that into perspective to help us live a life set apart from the Lord. Now, what about the rest of the dead? Well, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection spoken of here is not a single point in time, but the first resurrection began when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, according to the first fruits of 1 Corinthians 15, and it continues on to our day. It includes all those that believed in Jesus but died before the rapture, as well as those believers who are alive for the rapture. It includes those who are martyred for their refusal to take the mark of the beast during the tribulation. It also includes the Old Testament saints who did not have the opportunity to be a part of the church because they died before Jesus came. In other words, the first resurrection speaks of all those who are included in God's grand plan of salvation. 
So then verse 6, we read, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Folks, if nothing in life is your right, is, goes right, we are blessed to be a part of this first resurrection. We are going to heaven. On top of going to heaven, we'll be with Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now the question is, well, who are we ruling and reigning over? The answer, those that have survived the tribulation period, which include the, the one-third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were spared, it'll include all of those who didn't take the mark of the beast. So that sounds like a very small number at the end of the tribulation. There's not going to be a whole lot of people left. Yeah, but think about it. If you're living for a thousand years, which the Bible says in Isaiah 65, 20, if a child dies at, at the age of a hundred, it'll seem young. I mean, a thousand years of people living and reproducing in a perfect environment, the world is going to multiply very quickly. Now understand, we as believers, we're going to have our, our glorified bodies. We've been transformed, as the Bible says. The corruption is put on incorruption. Mortality is put on immortality. We've been given new bodies that are much like the body that Jesus had after he rose from the dead, after the disciples saw him after the resurrection. I mean, think about how fun this is going to be for a moment. I mean, think of what Jesus did in his resurrected body. Suddenly he would just appear in a room and then disappear. Then suddenly he's on a road, on Emmaus, with a couple of disciples. Then he's, he's back in the room again. And then he's back on a beach fixing breakfast for his disciples. I mean, it's just all over the place. Think about it in the millennium, man. For a minute, hey, I'm going to go spend some time in Hawaii. I need some, some ruling and reigning over here. What's Hawaii? And then, then back to, I don't know, Tahiti or someplace else. I mean, it, the whole place is going to be beautiful. But anyway, I mean, back and forth. That's the capacity we're going to have in these new bodies. And we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. We're also told in chapter 19, verse 15, that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. That is, there'll be enforced righteousness. No one will be able to get away with anything during this time. You may ask, well, why would anyone want to uh, in living in a perfect environment? Well, think about this. Uh, everyone who's left on the earth and everyone who's born during this time, they're still going to have that old sin nature. Now, again, that's not us. We've already, in our glorified bodies, and we looked at already, praise the Lord, but the people on earth, when Christ returns, who weren't following the beast, who didn't take the mark of the Antichrist, these people, even though the environment will be perfect, they will not be. Now, because Satan is bad, it makes it a whole lot easier, but people are still going to struggle with the thought life. They're still going to struggle with the things that we battle in our flesh. People are still going to wrestle with the tendency to be selfish or to cover or to get angry. They're still going to wrestle with their fleshly tendencies. But sin is not going to be blatant as it is today because there's going to be a healthy respect for the rule of Christ. I mean, think about the way it is in Iran right now. If you get caught for murder, you're immediately put to death. If you get caught for stealing, your right arm is, your right hand is cut off. Guess what? There's a very low murder rate, and, and you don't really see videos of one-handed people in Iran. Why? Because there's a healthy respect for the law and the rule in their country that is born, though, out of fear. In a similar way, during the millennial reign, there's going to be a healthy respect for the rule of the Lord, but it's going to be motivated by love, not fear. When people see how amazingly awesome the Lord is, they're going to be motivated by the Lord to want to please Him. But again, people still have that, that sin nature. They'll still, still be struggling with anger and disputes, and that's where we, we come in to keep the peace. Now, if you're a peace officer now, understand you're not just going to be going back to work, okay? It's going to be different. Justice will be served immediately. In fact, all believers will be peace officers during the millennium. 
which tells me there must be a Krispy Kreme donuts there. And, and so, but I, I, just kidding. Excuse me. I'm in trouble for that one. So during the thousand years, there'll be a time of perfect conditions, nothing but perfect peace and blessing, all accomplished with this forced righteousness. Now, but then something amazing happens. This brings us to our third point and what we see happen next, the end of the millennium. Look at verses 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather to them to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and their beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's interesting, at the end of this thousand years, we see that Satan is released, and obviously confinement didn't rehabilitate him. He's still up to his old tricks. After a thousand years of confinement, it did nothing to help this wicked, evil, fallen spirit being, and he goes right back out, released, and tries to whip up war against again and succeeds. And this just goes to show us that, that man had up at this point a thousand years of great security, great prosperity, great peace, great ecology, perfect peace, but there is still war. Because on the inside, man's hearts are wicked. As much as people like to, to believe in the false idea that man is continually getting better and that all wickedness will eventually leave kind of a, a Star Trek mentality, you know, humanism, we're just going to get better and there's going to be no more uh, war or any hunger or illness. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, that wickedness is in all of us. That's the reason that the, for these horrible things that happen in our world today. It's that, that sin nature. The psychologists, they have a name for it. They call it a behavior disorder. The sociologists, they call it a cultural lack. The communists call it class struggle. Others would say that it's a result from racism. You know what God says? God says it's sin. That's all it is. It's just sin. That's the root of the problem. Because here, man will be in a perfect environment, being ruled over by none other than Jesus Christ. No scandals in the government, but yet man still rebels because of the wickedness inside. They may ask, well, who's doing the rebellion? Well, it's the survivors from the tribulation period. Those who didn't take the mark of the beast, those who weren't destroyed in the end, from there there'll be people born into the millennium, those living a forced righteousness and peace, and they'll have no other choice, and those don't, they don't have a changed nature. There'll be those people who are under the rule of Christ they don't necessarily want to be, and this will be their final rebellion. But just as before, the, 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 the rebellion is going to be over as fast as it began. Verse 9 Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Brings us to our final point. After the millennium, look now at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from, those who, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
So this goes back to how we started our study this morning. Over and over again, we see in these verses the phrase, the dead being used. Remember back in the Garden of Eden where God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. There's no getting around it. Death is coming and everyone is going to be affected. God is no respecter of person. The person on this earth may be a king or a queen or or a prince or an emperor or a president or a movie star. It doesn't matter. Death is a great equalizer. Everyone here will stand before God who has not believed. Now this is important. Understand, only non-believers will be judged at the great white throne judgment. That's what we're reading about right here. The great white throne judgment is for non-believers only. Now you say, well, if it's for non-believers only, why have a great white throne judgment? Why have it? Especially since Jesus said in John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why go through the whole process of the great white throne judgment if this person is already condemned, if it's already clear that they're not getting into heaven, why not just send them straight to hell? Why do they have to appear before this judgment? Here's the reason, and we'll close with this. So they know why they are being condemned. The purpose of the final conflict between God and man is to clearly demonstrate to the non-believer why they are being condemned for eternity. Notice in verse 12 it says that the books will be opened and then the book is opened. So there's a plural book and there is a singular book. Many books... But the big book is the book of life. And if your name is not written in the book of life, you will not enter heaven. Now what's written in the books? Well, we can only speculate. Maybe one of the books will have the Ten Commandments. Because you remember that God gave the law according to Romans 3.19 that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, there are people who say, well, well you know, uh, uh, I've, I've kept the Ten Commandments. Really? You've run into people like that. You know, I, I don't need to commit my life to the Lord. I, I've, I've been good. You know, I, I, I don't need to turn from my sin. I've always kept the Ten Commandments. Followed the golden rule. I don't need religion. You really, you kept, you kept the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. Well, then you're breaking one right now because it says don't bear a false witness. And then you're lying and you're bearing a false witness. Nobody has lived by the Ten Commandments. Not a single person. Jesus is the only one that never broke a law. There's not a single person walking on this earth that hasn't broken these commandments. No matter how good you've been, you've broken at least some of them. Some people have broken all of them. So maybe that'll be one of the books that are open. The Ten Commandments are in there. Perhaps another book, because it says books here, will be a record of everything we've said and everything we've done. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We're also told in Matthew twelve thirty six, Jesus said, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. And Jesus goes on in verse 37, For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Maybe all those excuses that a person made for not coming to Christ in their lifetime will be recorded in those books. The time you said, Well, I don't believe God. I'm my own God. Those words will come back to haunt you, literally. Because the fact of the matter is, we'll all stand before God, and the one question He will ask is, what did you do with my Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, we all will. It doesn't matter who you are, what power, what prestige, what influence you may have. When you're done on this earth, we'll stand before the Lord. 
Maybe one of these books is a record of every time you've heard the gospel message. Because no doubt there's going to be some standing there going, well, I never heard. No one ever told me what Jesus did. I I didn't know. How can you judge me? Because I didn't know. God will say, give me a break. Roll them, Gabriel. That video screen up in heaven will come up and there'll be, you know, you sitting there uh, April 18th, 2021, 12 o'clock p.m., Sunday afternoon, and there's a gospel being said and, and you reject it. There'll be a record of every time you've heard the gospel and you will realize very quickly that you're not going to be able to plead ignorance. Verse 14 and 15 says, This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. First death is when you died on this earth. The second death is when a person stands before the Lord at this judgment as he can condemn forever to eternal torment. Their choice to not want God in their life, their choice to not follow Him is going to be honored as they are forever banished. Cast into the lake of fire, tormented forever and ever and ever. That's the second death. Death meaning being separated from God forever in torment. And they'll see the nail-scarred hands of Jesus scan the book of life for names. And if your name is not found in there, he will sadly, reluctantly, and very firmly say, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And those words will ring true in every non-believer's ear for all of eternity. I mean, what a tragic turn of events. I guarantee that God doesn't take any pleasure in this. It breaks the heart of God. As we close, I know that it's hard for some people to imagine a place like hell. But listen, if God is just, which we know He is, and if we know that God is loving, then there has to be a hell. You can't have a, a God of love without a God of justice. Yes, it's true that God loves us, but it's also true that God is just. And this just and holy God said that the soul that sins shall surely die. He said the wages of sin is death. And He's saying to you right now, turn from your sin and believe in Me, and all will be forgiven. He sent His gracious Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and shed His blood for your place 2,000 years ago. That's why it's the most radical of insults to say to God, I don't need Jesus. Do you realize how insulting that is? Essentially, you're saying to God, hey, this whole thing about sending your Son to die, hey, it was just a waste of time because I'm good enough. I can make it on my own. No, you're not. That's why God sent Jesus. See, people who reject the Word of God also reject God's final solution to the sin problem, His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the great white throne judgment and hell provides a final solution. Sin will finally be eliminated, either Calvary's cross or the lake of fire. Choice is up to you. As I shared already, we'll all go to one of two places, heaven or hell. Heaven, if you receive the forgiveness of your sin through what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, or hell, because you rejected what Jesus did upon the cross in your life. So where are you at this morning? The title of my message is How to Enjoy Eternity. If you want to enjoy eternity, you have to be born again. Then you'll be a part of His kingdom that will have no end. Are you born again today? It begins with a relationship with the King. This is an invitation. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Lord Jesus Christ when He becomes your Master, your Savior, your Lord. You come under His dominion, His authority, His kingship, and you'll live and you'll reign with Him forever. If this is your, uh, you want to do this, if you're not born again today, this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time.
And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, we looked at what happens to those that are not born again. We looked at the, the wages of sin for those that have, that have not called out to you, Lord God. That they'll have to pay their own penalty for their own sin. Father, I pray that there's not a single person in this room this afternoon that doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here right now that doesn't know you, that they would right now hear the call from your Holy Spirit to turn from their sin and turn to you. That they would be born again today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again. You want to be a part of God's kingdom and spend eternity with Him when you die. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all, just want to give you that opportunity to come to know Christ today. This is just between you and the Lord to make sure that you're born again today. Just raise your hand. Father God, we thank you for your grace, your love. Thank you for working in our lives, Lord. We anticipate with great excitement your return to this earth where we can be with you for all eternity. Bless our day, Lord, today. Bless this coming week. Help us to look for opportunities to bring glory to your name in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.